You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. When I have opportunity to look around at the world and see all the incredible things that are on display, that is what cries out in my soul. How great God is. Now it may be that this morning... You hear us sing that, maybe you sing along with this, and you're like, that's not really what I think. That's not what I I reflect on when I see this beauty in the world around me. I just say, oh, that's nice. Nature is pretty. Today I want to help you see why it is that I tie what I see, that mountain grandeur. When I walk through the forest glade, why I tie that to worship and to, to God. This morning, we're starting a new series of messages titled The Problem of God. We're going to spend five weeks looking at different problems that people have when it comes to having faith in God. And the reason that we're covering this is because I want to build your faith. Because if you have a strong faith, then you can rest a powerful hope upon that faith. Now, it might be that you're here this morning and you don't have any faith. You don't believe. And I want you to know that you're welcome. And I'm going to try to give you some faith this morning. It may be that you had faith, but you have gone through so much difficulty and adversity that you feel like your faith has been eroded by the circumstances of life. You've kind of watched it fade away and be washed away like the beach being pulled away by the ocean. You're here today. I want you to know I'm going to do my best to build your faith so you can rest hope upon it. And there are some of you here today, you have been in church your entire life. And what I'm going to talk about today, you don't question Because if you did question it, you don't know what answers you'd come up with. You're afraid to question it. And today I want to provide you with some answers so that you're not just having a blind faith, but a reasoned faith. Now i got to warn you, there is a bunch of information that I'm going to try to cover this morning. And it may be that I can't get to all of it. You guys pray for Allison running the slides in the back. i got more slides than ever before because I want you to see all this info. But if I go too fast that you miss something or if I have to skip over something, every bit of this is available in the sermon notes that we provide live right now in the YouVersion app, the Bible app under the events section. You can follow along in the notes. And we're going to take this message and provide it in video, audio, and also the transcript of my message online on our website. So if you need to go back and review it, you can, or you can share it with someone. So listen fast, I'll talk fast, and hopefully we can cover all of this material and build your faith today. If you would join me in the book of Genesis, the very first book in your Bible, we're going to look at the opening words of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins in the beginning, literally, in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. This is how it all got started. Let me tell you about a typical scenario that plays out at our house. 
the middle of the night, and I am dead asleep. And Nicole will turn over and elbow me and say, did you hear that noise? <laughs> what was that? Now, when I first, when we first got married, when she would say that, I would spring out of bed, you know, like a ninja. <laughs> and I would go make sure there was nothing in the house. But those days are long gone. Because now, when she elbows me and says, what was that noise? I kind of halfway roll over and say, it's nothing. Go back to sleep, right? Now, she knows it's not nothing. Because nothing makes no noise. It has to be something. So if she doesn't take that answer, I'll say things like, it's just the house settling, right? <laughs> Which that's what husbands say when they don't want to get out of bed in the middle of the night. Or it's probably a squirrel running on the roof, right? Because I'm tired and half asleep, I don't want to get out of bed. Now, I love my wife, and I want to keep my family safe, but in that groggy state of mind, I'm not thinking clearly, it's not my fault. <laughs> Let me show you how much it's not my fault. Somewhere in between where we're at now and when we first got married, when I was still trying to be a little bit more chivalrous, um, Nicole woke me in the middle of the night and said, what was that noise? I was still half asleep, but I went staggering down the hallway. Now, somewhere down the hallway, I don't know when this happened, how it happened, but I fell asleep again and then woke back up in the kitchen. <laughs> and when I woke up back in the kitchen, I didn't remember the conversation that we'd had. And you know what I thought? I thought, I'm here for a midnight snack. That's the reason I'm here. <laughs> so I went about making a snack. I'm sitting down at the table. I don't know what I was eating, but I was eating something. And Nicole comes creeping down the hallway. Daniel. Daniel. The whole time I'm eating a snack, she's in the bedroom thinking, there was a bad guy and Daniel's dead. He's never coming back. So she finally worked up the courage to creep down the hallway and whisper my name. She came in the kitchen and she saw me eating. She was mad, okay? And I was confused because I'm like, oh, hey, you want a snack? What's wrong? I didn't remember any of that previous conversation. What happens a lot of times in life is when we are faced with questions, like, what was that? Or, what's this all about? Or, what is happening? We say, nothing. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. Because it's much more comfortable to say, don't worry about it. It's nothing. And the only times that we wrestle for answers to these questions are when it is more uncomfortable to not have an answer than it is to search for an answer. And there are times in this life that because we want an answer so badly, we spring out of our slumber, we spring out of our grogginess, and if we have to, we'll make up an answer. We'll say something we've heard other people say, something that's sentimental, something that makes us feel better. And today, I want to provide you with some answers. And it may cause you to get uncomfortable. You might have to sit up. You might have to come out of your grogginess. But when the day comes where it would be unbearable to not have an answer, you'll be glad that you heard the truth. The messages that I want to share with you this morning are inspired by the book by Mark Clark entitled, The Problem of God. Mark grew up in an atheistic home. So atheistic that when his older brother, Matthew, was born, 
His father said, listen, honey, if you're going to name him Matthew, you've got to spell it with one T, because I want it to be obvious to everyone he's not named after the guy in the Bible, because I don't believe in the Bible. So she said, okay. So Mark's older brother is named Matthew with one T. But when the Mark came along, apparently his dad didn't know about there being a Mark in the Bible right after Matthew, and he didn't have any problem with that spelling. So he grew up in this home where there was this animosity towards Scripture and the things of God. Mark's parents got a divorce when he was nine, and shortly thereafter, he developed a serious case of OCD and Tourette syndrome. He would smack himself in the face because he felt compulsively he had to, that if he didn't, something bad would happen. He developed a form of Tourette's where he would yell things out, and often the things that he would yell would be profanity, including the F word. When he was 15, his father died suddenly. It wasn't really suddenly. His father died of lung cancer, and he hadn't told the family that he was sick. So they never had a chance to say goodbye. And so here's Mark, struggling with severe OCD and Tourette's syndrome, standing at this small funeral. People have gathered to pay their respects to his father, and he suddenly has all of these questions. And they were uncomfortable questions. Like, will I see my dad again? Is he just no longer existing? Where did he go? He decided to deal with those questions by turning to drugs. Became a pothead. His drug addiction became to the point where he started stealing from people that he loved and cared about. But then something incredible happened before his eyes. The drug dealer in his school suddenly did a 180 and had a complete transformation. And he told people, it's because of Jesus. Now, at first, Mark laughed. <laughs> really, this guy's turning his life around because of Jesus? But as he watched that this guy started to live his life and how completely different it was, he decided that he needed to figure out for himself and finally answer those questions that had been gnawing at him. He started researching scientific and philosophical questions. He came to believe that not only was there a God, but that he had communicated who he was to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And today... Mark, who had severe OCD and Tourette's syndrome, who said the F word out loud compulsively on a regular basis, now he pastors one of the fastest growing churches in Canada. He no longer says the F word every so often. <laughs> he wrestled with these questions, and the answers that he found led him to faith in God and gave him hope. And Mark says in the book, that one of the biggest breakthroughs for him was when he recognized that the debate between faith and science, the debate between belief and atheism, was a little bit of a rigged debate in the public square. Now, I'm sure that everyone in here, there is a news channel or a television program or a website that you think is just absolutely fake news that you think is nothing but a puppet arm for those that are on the opposition party of your political party. And I want to tell you that I feel the same way when it comes to these matters. That when it comes to debate about belief in science in the public square, it's portrayed very much one-sided. How many times do we see this happen? Listen, there's been a new archaeological study. We brought on some experts to talk about this. On the left panel, we have 
Professor Smith. He has degrees from Cambridge University, Oxford University, and seven other prestigious colleges. And he's going to tell us how this points to the fact that there is no God. And to argue the counterpoint is Joe, who grew up in a swamp and is most notably known for his appearances on a fishing program. And that's the, the basis. That's, that's the, the people that are, that are set before us. I mean, some of the most publicity that Christians have gotten in controversy in the last couple of years have been from a guy who makes duck calls on a duck hunting program, right? And then somebody who owns a chicken restaurant. Those are the two Christians. Now, I'm not saying that, they, that what they said was wrong, but we never bring out somebody with a bunch of degrees behind their name to defend faith in the public square. And because of that, there is this portrayal, there is this idea that to believe in Christianity, you've got to check your brain at the door. There are people that think that when we gather here on Sunday mornings, that we just park our brains in neutral when we get out of the car, and that everything we talk about is touchy-feely, that everything that we go over is something that you, you just feel good about. Now, let me show you just how reinforced this, this bias is in a pretty shocking and telling admission. Harvard biologist Richard Luan wrote in the New York Review of Books that he prefers a naturalistic explanation in everything that he studies. He says, We have a prior commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, beforehand, adherence to material causes. We cannot allow a defined foot in the door. You know what he's saying? He's saying that when we come to our research, when we come to our thinking, when we come to our studies, we are looking for a naturalistic explanation, not a divine explanation. We're not looking for any work of God in this. And we don't even want to let God to get a foot in the door. Because this debate has been portrayed this way, there are a few misconceptions I want to clear up to begin with. First of all, science and God are not opposed. Now, in our court system, cases are often referred to as Jones v. Smith or the people of Indiana v. Mr. Green. And we see that V and we think verses, right? It's Jones versus Smith, like they're in a duel. One is going to win, the other is going to be thrown out. But that, that, that framing actually comes from the Latin, and V doesn't mean verses, it means and. The appropriate way to see that is Jones and Smith, the people of the state of Indiana and Mr. Green. And when we talk about God versus faith, we shouldn't think in those terms at all. We should think of God and science belief, and the natural world. They're not in opposition to one another. Now, some places have this mindset that the reason there is this faith versus science idea is because years ago, the church persecuted scientists because they had a, a heliocentric view of the world, because they said that the sun was the center of the, the solar system. People will tell you the Catholic Church persecuted like people like Copernicus and Galileo and Giordano Bruno, that they tortured them for their heliocentric view of the solar system. And, and i got to tell you, Bruno was not executed for his heliocentric view 
Rather, he was killed because of his views on the Trinity. Now, I don't think that was a good idea that they did that, okay? But when they killed him, and they shouldn't have, it wasn't because of what he said about science. It was because of the perspective he had about theology. And there is this myth that the church has always been at odds with those who are making progress in the fields of science. Oxford professor McGrath said, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian in science. See, if you look back, you, you don't see that the church has been in opposition to science. That's not what you find. That's not what happened. So let's lay aside this idea that the church is against science. And let's lay aside the idea that science then leads to atheism or disbelief. Stephen Jay Gould, who is an atheist, all right? This is not, hey, bring out all your Christian friends who have degrees and give them quotes. He is an atheist. And he, he argues that, that the natural world should not be used to prove the, that there is no existence of God. He says, nature just is in all her complexity and diversity and all her sublime indifference to our desires therefore we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion you know what he's saying he's saying you can't take science and say that it proves that there isn't a god it teaches us more about this material world this natural world that we're in but it doesn't tell us anything beyond that even the laws of physics the laws of physics show us how the world works. But there are metaphysics. The word meta means beyond. There are things beyond physics. Physics can't explain. It shows us things that operate within this box or within this sphere. But it can't tell us what goes beyond that. And so science does not work in opposition to God. And science does not even lead us away from belief in God. But rather, for many people, science and research and study leads them towards faith in God. Francis Collins, he is the man who mapped the human genome. He's the one who has told us that within our DNA, there is enough information to fill volume upon volume of encyclopedias just within our DNA. He was a doctor and a researcher when it dawned on him that he had been treating many areas of his life unscientifically, that he had just made assertions. And one of these areas of life was his faith or his lack thereof. He said this, I have found there is a wonderful harmony in the complementary truths of science and faith. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory. And by investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. You know what Francis Collins was saying? When I do my work, I see the handiwork of God. He wrote a book about the human genome, and he called it the language of God because he believed that the code that was instilled into our DNA, that it was the, the handwriting, the signature of God. Now, Francis Collins leads me to this next misconception. Not all scientists are atheists. Now, here's what I hear. What, do you really believe that? I mean, no scientist believes in God anymore. I mean, hasn't science disproved that there is a God? No scientist who's respected and reputable believes in God anymore. That's not true. Not all scientists are atheists. In addition to Francis Collins, there are many reputable scientists making great advancements in research while also having faith in God. 
Alan Rex Sandage, who's referred to as one of the greatest observational cosmologists of all time, has said, It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is more complicated than can be explained by science. And these guys aren't alone. I mean, I didn't go searching to find two scientists that believe in God. It's not like, okay, there's two of them, Daniel. In 2009, the American Association for the Advancement of Science found that 51% of scientists were theists, that they believed in some form of deity or higher power. 51%. You know what that is? That's a majority. The majority of scientists believe that there is some higher power. Another 7% are agnostic, which means they don't know if there is a God or if there isn't. They're kind of neutral. If you go to just the hard sciences, hard not meaning like it's more difficult, but hard sciences and it's tactile and, and material, such as physics and cosmology, the percentage is even higher. So if anybody ever tells you, well, no scientists believe in the majority do. They believe. And this belief in God is not only prevalent in the hard sciences, but it's on the rise in the soft sciences and those things like philosophy. In fact, Quentin Smith wrote not, not too long ago about how upset he is that so many departments of philosophy at university are becoming what he called de-secularized. And this is what he said. In philosophy, it became almost overnight academically respectable to argue for theism. He just couldn't believe it. Can you believe that it's becoming respectable to believe in God? He just couldn't believe it. Now, the majority of this, they believe, is because of a man named Alvin Platinga, who is considered by many people the greatest living philosopher today. And they call it the Platinga effect because of his influence on other philosophers. Nearly a third of philosophers and philosophy departments believe in God. So, it's not that all scientists are atheists. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. And it's not that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Earlier, Eric led us in reading Psalm 24. And there's probably a word in there that maybe wasn't familiar to some of you. It actually closes the psalm, and then it's actually in the middle, and it says, Selah. And throughout the poetry in God's Word, we often find this phrase, Selah. But you know what that means? It means... Think about this. Psalm 24 talks about the beauties of creation. And then it says, think about that. Take a moment and think about that. My, my job as a pastor is not to try to convince you not to think. My job as a pastor is not to get you to believe without thinking. My job is to help you think, which leads to belief. And the poetry of God calls us to take time and consider. Throughout Scripture, there are calls to meditate upon these truths. The Shema, which was the, 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 the truth that the people would recite every day when they gathered in the synagogue or in the temple. It said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your might, your muchness, everything about you. And that included the mind. And when Jesus quoted it in the New Testament, he said specifically the mind. He wants us to love us with, love him with all of our mind. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It's essentially intellectual. 
to believe, you've got to understand. Why do I stand up in front of you and talk for 30 minutes every Sunday? Because I'm trying to communicate truth to you. Now, if I just got up here like the ShamWell guy or the OxyClean guy and tried to pressure you into something, right? It might be because I'm not really that convinced about what I'm trying to sell. But when I stand before you, I try to give you God's word. The more of this that I can make clear, the better. Because if you think on these things, it leads to faith. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Scripture calls us to think. And the university was a 12th century Christian invention. Have you ever heard of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, these and several others prestigious institutions, you know why they started? They started as Christian institutions. Started by Christians. That's not, that's not the, the work of a religion that doesn't think. The university was to bring in a diversity of ideas under the understanding that God has given us a mind and the laws of nature so that we can study and learn. In fact, I would put to you that a Christian worldview promotes curiosity, observation, scientific research, and technological advancement. And Kenneth Richard Sample cites 10 different variables in Christian belief that lead to experimentation. Because we don't believe that, we don't believe that when you get sick, it's a demon. We don't believe that when there's a storm, it's a spirit, right? But many other religions in the world, many other cultures, there's a hurricane. What's going on? Poseidon is angry. Let's, let's offer someone as a human sacrifice. Maybe that'll calm him down. That's not, that's not the Christian mindset. The Christian mindset is that God has created the world and he has made it a world of order because he is a God of order. And if the world has order and rules and laws to it, they can be observed and experimented upon and understood and recreated, reproduced. So we've unraveled those three misconceptions, right? You still with me? I told you this is a lot of information, all right? First, those three misconceptions. God and science are not opposed. Not all scientists are atheists. And Christianity is not anti-intellectual. I just want to briefly point to three facts, three scientific principles that actually point to or toward belief in God. Now, I know that it kind of feels like we're in science class this morning, okay? And I know that you feel like, man, I, I haven't talked about this much science since I was in high school, and I, I cut some of those classes. But I'm not talking about science class. What I'm talking about is the material world that you and I live in that when you woke up this morning, you breathed in oxygen, and you put your feet on the ground, and you didn't float to the ceiling because of gravity. And all of this that is around us, it's not just science, but we believe that it is the handiwork of God. I want you to imagine that you worked really hard on something, okay? Maybe you're an artist and you drew some beautiful picture. You have this portrait that you have drawn. Or maybe you're you're a, a house remodeler. You've worked on some room. You have done a whole bunch of work refinishing that bathroom. You and your wife had seven fights about what color it was going to be, and finally you settled it, and you got the room painted. Or maybe at your job, 
You put together some new effort, some new department. How would you feel if someone else took the credit for that work? Right? If I said, hey, did you see their kitchen? I did that. And you're like, what? <laughs> hey, you see this picture? I, I, I'm the one who put this. I, I made this portrait. You're like, Pastor Jane, you can't even draw stick figures. What are you talking about? Everywhere around us is God's artistry. And this morning, I just want to help you see that down at the bottom, there's this signature showing us that he's the one that created this. So let me point to you to, uh, to what I would refer to as naturalism's flaw. Charles Darwin revolutionized science with his book, The Origin of the Species. And that's not the full title, but we get, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. And this idea, he tells us that everything is filtered through the survival of the fittest. You understand natural selection, right? The strongest survive, the weak die. So the traits that we have are the product of generation after generation after generation of the strongest surviving. We're here with two eyes because people with two eyes, they were better than people with one eye. And they didn't make it, right? We have a little bit of meat on our bones, some fat on our skin because people who could eat that much food and save it for later, they lived and those skinny people died off, right? You see skinny people in the congregation this morning, they're the weaker of (laughs) the people. So this idea... This idea tells us that everything is filtered through the survival of the fittest, natural selection. Naturalism centers around four F's. Feeding, got to get food. So we developed traits that helped us find, kill, secure, digest food. Fleeing, getting away from danger, avoiding danger, fighting, overcoming predators, staying safe. And lastly, fourthly, fornicating, reproducing. Carrying our genes on to the next generation. That's how our species continued to survive. So eating, getting away from danger, overcoming enemies or predators, and procreating or reproducing. So what this means is that truth takes a backseat to survival. That it doesn't matter so much what is true, but what will help me survive. You're in love with that person, so what? It doesn't matter. What matters is that I like them and I can procreate with them and we'll continue our offspring. What's true doesn't matter. What matters is survival. And because of this idea, those who hold to natural selection say that religion is this flaw that has come out of our minds that we have created because it made us feel better. And we were able to survive because religion gave us hope when nothing else would. The religion made us feel better. And so we kept going, whereas the weaker counterparts got sick and depressed and didn't carry on. But here's the problem with that. If I can't trust my brain to understand the truth about God, you can't trust your mental faculties to tell you the truth about evolution or even science. Evolutionists will argue that this, what we're doing right now, gathering, singing, reading a book that's ancient, that this is all just a product of our natural selection, trying to make things a little bit better for ourselves. But if that is the flaw within us, then the same could be said of origin of the species or any other research that we come to. We're just making things up. We can't understand it. Mitch Stokes says, because there's no telling whether unguided evolution would fashion our cognitive faculties to produce the mostly true beliefs, 
Atheists who believe in the standard evolutionary story must reserve judgment about whether any of their beliefs produced by these faculties are true. This includes belief in the evolutionary story. Believing in unguided evolution comes built in with it its very own reason to not believe it. Do you get what I'm saying? If you believe in evolution, if you believe in naturalism, natural selection, you're saying that your brain will trick you into thinking things that aren't true. Then you can't trust it for anything. How many of you remember Calvin and Hobbes? Cartoon. One of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is a little boy. He's got his stuffed animal tiger who comes to life halfway through uh, every cartoon, and they're on a tree branch, and they're sawing the tree branch. But the problem is that they're on the wrong end of the tree branch. And they're about to saw it off, and they're going to fall. That's what naturalism's flaw does. It makes an argument that cuts itself off. It's saying that your brain isn't able to make these decisions or figure this out. And you know who else worried about this? Charles Darwin worried about this. Because this is what Charles Darwin said. Then within me... There's the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value at all or trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm worried that if, if I'm right, how can I know that I'm right? So there's naturalism's flaw. And then there's the problem of the Big Bang. Years ago, Scientists took issue with theologians who would say, they would say, there's no reason to believe in God. This has always been. You don't need to believe that God created the universe. The universe has always been. The only thing that's eternal is the universe. It always has been. It always will be. The sun's just going to keep coming up. It's going to keep setting. We have a day after day after day. People live. They die. It's been happening for millions of years. It's going to happen into eternity. The universe has always been. 1800 skeptic David Hume even said, I would never assert such an absurd position that things that are just suddenly came to be or that anything might arise without a cause. So the atheist position was, we don't need to believe that God created everything because everything has always been. And then something happened in 1929. Edwin Hubble looked into his 100-inch telescope in California and started working out some calculations. And what he saw was that the galaxies were moving away from one another. And based upon his calculations, he came up with a formal formula that the, the universe was fastly expanding. It's getting bigger. And it's not so much that the galaxies are moving away from one another, but rather space is getting bigger. All right? this, is, this is what it looks like, okay? You see the dots on this balloon? As space expands, the galaxies in space get farther and farther apart. And space is getting bigger and bigger. And the galaxies are getting farther and farther apart. You want to teach your kids something about astronomy and cosmology? You, you draw some dots on a balloon. You tell them this is what you learned in church. But then Hubble, he worked... His formula is in reverse. And he said, they all came from the same point of origin. It all started in the same place. And he said there was some giant primeval explosion 
that sent the galaxies flinging out into space. And he called it the Big Bang. He referred to this Big Bang that sent the galaxies flinging out into space. And scientists, they had a problem with this. Thomas Edison didn't like Hubble's ideas. He discounted them at first. It was only until he went and spent time with Hubble in California and saw him work out his formulas that he finally came to agree with him. He would say later in life that his, one of his greatest regrets is that he discounted Hubble's findings. And the reason that they struggled with this is because if it all came from one spot, that means that something caused it. Something had to happen. And when I hear the Big Bang, I don't, I don't say, oh boy, that, that's, a, that's a threat to God's existence. You know what I think? I think he was the one who pushed the button. Bang. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Bang. You know it's a little uh, worrisome? They think that this expanding of the universe... The galaxies getting farther and farther away from one another, that when they bring it all back together, it all came from the same point of origin. <laughs> you know, they said, they said eventually the balloon's going to be full. And then it's going to have to start working in reverse. <laughs> it's it's going to reach as far as it'll go. And then it's going to start working back. You know what they found? They found that not only was there a beginning to everything, there's going to be an end to everything. It hasn't always been, and it will not always be. So atheists, they're struggling with this. So they say, well, the Big Bang just came from nothing. And they've taken the exact opposite position that they held 100 years ago. That you can't get something from nothing. There had to be something there. And the formula that the modern atheists hold on to right now is nothing times nobody equals everything. That everything that we see, everything that is in front of you, everything that you've experienced on your way here from the day you were born till the day you die, all of it, it happened because there was nothing and there was nobody and those combined brought about everything. And that is no formula to base the decisions that you make in this life upon. Ask yourself, is that the formula that you live this life based upon? Nobody times nothing equals everything. And all that you have to consider that everything didn't come from nothing, you have to consider the precision at which everything came from substance. Stephen Hawking has concluded that when that Big Bang happened, that they, they, they do their formulas and they come back to it, they said the rate of expansion, one second, one second, one Mississippi, one second, after the Big Bang, if it had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millions, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. Stephen Hawking said the odds against the universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous, and I think there are religious implications. Everything did not come from nothing because of the intervention of nobody. Everything came from nothing 
because of something, and I believe somebody. After we moved into our new house, there were new unfamiliar sounds in the middle of the night. And once again, I became this person who woke up. Now, in our, in our home that we lived in across the street here, we never had a water softener. In our new home, we have a water softener. If you own a water, how many of you own a water softener? You know that the water softener will recharge at some point. And ours was set to recharge at 2 in the morning. So when the water softener started to recharge, it's, it sounds like rushing water. And so at 2 in the morning, that first week that we were there, and the water softener recharged for the first time, it sounded like plumbing had exploded. And I had worked on some of the plumbing, so I wasn't really confident that it was all going to hold together in the middle of the night. And my first thought was, plumbing has exploded and is ruining this house that I have just renovated for the last several months. And I darted out of bed, and I ran towards the noise. And I got to the water softener, and there was no puddle. There was no water on the wall. And then I realized, this stupid water softener is really loud. <laughs> but what I did not think in the middle of the night was, it's nothing. I realized it had to be something. And it wasn't until I figured out what that something was that I could be at ease. And friend, I hope that if anything else this morning, I've helped you to wake up to the fact that it's got to be something. Everything did not come from nothing because of nobody. It has to be something. And I don't believe that you'll feel at ease until you figure out that something or that somebody. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.